trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists because there is a battle taking place for your mind. And I'm not the person who's looking to plant the flag and claim it in the name of the queen. Yes, we are going to claim your mind. I'm encouraging you to claim your mind as your own, to claim your worldview as your own. And that means you should probably not even take what I say as, uh, you know, well, I can hang my hat on that. Question everything. Question the narratives. Push back against those who tell you this is the way it's got to be, and you have no choice but to believe this. In fact, don't even look over there. Don't even think about something that uh, doesn't fit what I'm telling you. You know, truth be told, you can recognize there's a lot of that going on these days. I'm here to share information with you that I think is good, principled, factual information. I can't guarantee it's 100% accurate, but I do my best not to, you know, feed you, um, you know, bad information or to run with rumors or sensationalize things in the hopes that, uh, you know, we'll create some buzz. I'm just giving you the best information that I can find and what you do with it. That is entirely up to you. I will still love you and I will still respect you, even if you entirely disagree with the conclusions that that I happen to come to. By the way, great sponsors make this program possible. I would love it if you would show some love to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingQuiltingCenter.com, that's also located in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourIncome.com, as well as SolarPatriots.com. I put nice handy links to every one of them in my show notes, which you can find out at my website, thebrianhideshow.com. So as, as alarming as it's been to watch all the various lockdown and crisis stuff that's taking place in the last 20 months, the recent COP26 meeting in Scotland set off a few more alarm bells for me. Now, I'm very, very fortunate. As part of, uh, part of my work, I also produce audio and podcasts for other people. And I love it because um, in, in my journey, I have uh, come in contact with a group called Young Voices. This was originally based out of the Washington, D.C. area. They actually have a chapter over in the U.K. So each week, I get the chance to, to visit with various contributors to the Young Voices organization. And these are very, very bright writers and commentators who are just at the beginning of their media careers. And, and these are liberty-minded people, very principled, very, very intelligent. Had a chance to talk with one of them yesterday. Um, his name is Connor Tomlinson. And I'm going to make a bold prediction here. I think Connor is, Connor is a guy who is, is destined for stardom. And I don't mean in a superficial sense. I mean, this guy's a solid thinker. He's funny. He's very personable. The camera favors him. But he also has a great mind, and he reported on what he calls eco-authoritarianism from COP26, which was the big climate change meeting that took place in Glasgow, Scotland. Yes, this is the one where world leaders convened on Scotland because we are so concerned about, you know, reducing people's carbon footprints 
that uh, why Joe Biden showed up with an 85 car caravan and entourage to be a part of this. And then he ended up sleeping through, you know, at least a portion of it. My goodness. It, you know, they, they, they flew there on hundreds and hundreds of jets and they brought thousands of support staff. And yes, they're very serious about burning all of those fossil fuels and adding all that air pollution to warn us about the danger of why we need lower climate emissions. You backyard barbecuers. Anyway, I want to share some thoughts with you from uh, Connor Tomlinson and his article, which was published in the Spectator, spectator.org. Will more eco-authoritarianism come from COP26? Connor writes, Our international political class is set to descend on Glasgow this November for the United Nations Climate Change Summit. Now, I believe this summit is over, but uh, this, was, this was written, this was actually published uh, back in, in uh, late October. He says, A swarm seems to be an apt comparison given that 1,500 waste disposal staff are set to strike for the duration of the event, leaving the unnecessary trash produced by the environmental devotees flowing out of bags and bins for all to see. And like flies, he says, the bad ideas proposed to revolutionize everyone's lives for the worst are bound to be in abundance. Tomlinson says, speculation is circulating as to what bright ideas world leaders will have for how to seize and spend everyone else's money. Concern has been rightly expressed over plans to reappropriate lockdown policies to lower climate emissions. That's a very valid concern, by the way. Well, it worked so well, why don't we apply it to the climate? Now we're not just fighting COVID, we're fighting climate change. I mean, they've been twisting our arm on this for years, but now we've got something that we can actually use to force people to do what we want. Hooray! Connor Tomlinson says... The placement of this year's conference in Glasgow is unfortunate for anyone hoping the authoritarian tendencies of the international political class were on the wane. Britain's besiegement by eco-socialists for the last five years may sway world leaders in attendance at, at COP to, toward more authoritarian measures. Like America's Sunrise Movement, which staged riots at the White House, the UK's homegrown extremist Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain have blockaded bridges and roads, causing four-car collisions and permanent paralysis of ambulance occupants. He says, in debates with Extinction Rebellion activists, I fought firsthand their endorsement of using lockdowns to reduce carbon emissions. Their callous indifference to the lives and livelihoods ended by the British state by its decision to impose the sixth strictest lockdowns for 18 months is a disturbing barometer of the totalitarianism guiding our political paradigm. He says another concerning carryover from the pandemic life could be the digital surveillance system numerous states have subjected their citizens to. The UK is poised to copy the EU, Australia, and Canada by instituting vaccine passports via the NHS app, which has been vulnerable to data breaches, as well as collecting information like sexual habits and political affiliation from its users. A carbon social credit system could spawn from this digital infrastructure. Smart homes for lighting and heating, cashless contactless transaction records, and AI incorporative transport could all provide data on the carbon emissions caused by the behavior of each individual. The UK government is setting targets for energy suppliers to install these across Britain's homes. And if used as a predicate for legislation, this digitized data collection network could cause calls for energy rations when renewables dip below expected generation rates, such as when Texas saw turbines freeze back in February. 
Now, Connor Tomlinson says the UK's transport secretary has proposed a law allowing the government to interfere with the grid and limit car household or household car charger output during peak hours. That's effectively a travel lockdown with the state leaving your electric car empty if and when it pleases. MasterCard is also partnering with the World Economic Forum to cap its users' purchases according to carbon emissions. Citizens could have their emissions compared to global carbon credit markets and in a Black Mirror-esque move, be banned from public transport, electricity use, or purchasing necessary goods should they exceed their personal emissions limits. But he says COP26 remains as futile as it is fascistic so long as the model for technocratic totalitarianism, China, vacates its seat at the table. As President Donald Trump once pointed out, membership of the Paris Accords has not kept Beijing on the straight and narrow to reducing carbon emissions. And he says as the summit approached, China is increasing coal production across 251 mines, leading to a, leading to a, 16, a projected 16% increase in global emissions. Now, Connor Tomlinson says the Public Accounts Committee will be auditing Prime Minister Boris Johnson's plans for reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050, neutralizing only 1% of global emissions in excess of a 1 trillion pound cost, with a renewables grid projected to cost 2.9 trillion pounds to meet only 27% of consumer energy needs. These measures will incur new taxes, a 50% rise in heating bills. Haven't we been warned about that here in America as well? and a 15,000-pound in home improvement costs for each family. He was explaining this to me yesterday. A lot of the, the homes in, in Great Britain are, are heated with, with boilers. And if you put a heat pump in there, which, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had to work with a heat pump. My, my poor mom has one of these, and it just, they just suck. <laughs> they're, they're just not great, depending on the climate that you're in. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's about a, it's, it's a very costly expense to to replace and for those across the pond stunned by biden's trillion dollar infrastructure bill connor says imagine the cost of net zero in britain proportionate to america's five-fold higher population and try not to weep so we'll come back to finish off uh, connor tomlinson's article and i want to also provide some perspective uh from pat buchanan on this cop 26 climate conference that just took place Look, the central planners are still doing exactly what they love to do, and that's centrally plan. Whether that's good for you or bad, well, that's not for you to say. After all, we know best, or so they tell us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I was just sharing an article from my friend Connor Tomlinson, who is a contributor for the uh, Young Voices UK chapter, as well as, uh, I believe he's a member of the British Conservation Association. I'm sorry, Connor, I, I just totally botched. Uh, but he's part of a conservation group in Britain, so don't, don't think, yeah, this is a guy out there burning tires on Earth Day. No, he's he's quite uh, quite eco-conscious, but also very freedom conscious and free market conscious, which is why he's calling out things like the COP26 uh, climate conference that just took place 
in which so many people showed up, you know, just flooding Scotland with all of these jets and cars. I mean, come on, if they were really serious about climate change and about saving the planet, I mean, come on, why why wouldn't they take sailboats? Why wouldn't they take rail or, you know, some some kind of mass transit? Anyway, back to Connor's article. He says the onus is on the Anglosphere to circumvent Chinese influence by developing profitable technologies and exporting them to other countries presently dependent on China's Belt and Road Initiative to upgrade their infrastructure. Pacts like uh, AUKUS... AUKUS are a solid start for strengthening military deterrence, but he says our economic prowess remains impaired by the likes of the protectionist clauses in the CPTPP and the suicidal costs of climate policies. Energy independence from the likes of Russian gas and Chinese batteries are desirable goals, but he says that should be done by leveraging market competition through providing tax incentives for repatriating manufacturing and innovation. We shouldn't be pillaging our economies and the leaps and bounds living standards have come while China threatens to undo such sacrifices in their quest for global dominance. So Connor Tomlinson says the leading lesson from lockdowns is that the free world should not be copying China's authoritarian model in fighting any climate crisis either. And climate crisis is in quotation marks. Allowing another evil empire to become the dominant cultural and economic superpower while the West races to a renewable bottom will not make a world worth saving beyond 2050. Now let's shift gears over to uh, Pat Buchanan. This was published recently, I think this was published yesterday on intellectualtakeout.org. Did Glasgow deliver blah, blah, blah? Buchanan says at the end of the first week of the Glasgow Climate Summit, 100,000 protesters marched to denounce the attendees as phonies who will never honor their commitments to curb carbon emissions. Despite pledges by 100 nations to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030 and by 20 nations, including the U.S., to end financing of new international fossil fuel power plants, teenage climate superstar activist Greta Thunberg says... The COP26 summit, rather, is a con. Two weeks of business as usual, blah, blah, blah. She did not say, how dare you? But I'm going to throw it in there just for fun. Now, he says, Thunberg has a point. Commitments made in Scotland are not binding upon governments that, be they autocratic or democratic, do not subordinate their national interests to pledges ostensibly made in global forums. He says this Glasgow summit calls to mind the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which won a Nobel Peace Prize for Secretary of State Frank Kellogg. On August 28, 1920, August 27, 1928, rather, 15 high-contracting parties signed on to renounce war as an instrument of national policy. The signatories that day were the United States, Britain, Germany, Italy, Japan, France, Poland, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, and India. Now, within 15 years, all 15 nations, Ireland alone accepted, were ensnared in the greatest war in history. So, like the pledges at the climate summit, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, Pact rather, provided no, for no means of enforcement or sanctions against nations that failed to live up to their commitment. He says, consider... China is the world's largest emitter of, chi- of carbon emissions. Russia, the fourth largest, and Brazil, the seventh largest worldwide. 
Yet President Xi Jinping of China, President Vladimir Putin of Russia, and President Jair uh, Bolsonaro of, of Brazil did not show up at the summit. And President Joe Biden of the United States and Prime Minister Boris Johnson of Great Britain both fell asleep during the proceedings. So Pat Buchanan says Glasgow is destined to fail because national interests invariably triumph over globalism. The demands of the people who keep regimes in power will be heard and heeded before the claims of the transnationals. Biden, faced with a threat by Senator Joe Manchin to sink his Build Back Better bill, summarily dropped a measure that would have imposed rising carbon taxes on fossil fuel plants and provided monetary rewards for clean energy facilities. Biden dropped it because his own and his party's fortunes depend on enacting the legislation. Now, Buchanan says the protests in Scotland this weekend were far more colorful than the year-long yellow vest protests in France. Yet the French protests proved more effective and successful. That movement originated with French motorists from rural areas who had long commutes and were protesting an increase in fuel taxes that was real and immediate. Now, the French protests had a specific goal, and they succeeded in bringing about a reduction in the fuel taxes. King coal is dead, we heard from the summit. Really? Buchanan says coal is a foundational resource in Asia, and the demand for coal grows as populations and economies of Asia expand. Coal accounts for 60 to 65 percent of the electricity generation in China and 68 to 73 percent in India. Two nations that represent more than a third of the world's population. Nations such as Australia depend upon the sale and shipment of coal as essential components of their exports. And consider Scotland itself. Should it move to secede from Britain, will it gladly forfeit the North Sea oil and gas deposits that have proven so beneficial to Britain? As America transitions to clean energy and electric vehicles, our own reliance upon China will grow. For China today is the world's principal supplier of solar panels and the rare earth minerals vital to the batteries of electric cars. Now, to get to Glasgow, delegates, journalists, and activists had to travel by commercial or private jet, and every restaurant, bar, hotel room, and conference hall had to be lighted and heated by electricity generated by the kind of gas, oil, and coal-fired plants that the global elites want on the chopping block by mid-century. So the carbon footprint of the Glasgow summit was not inconsiderable, says Pat Buchanan. Now that the presidents and prime ministers have departed the global summit in its second and final week, we're going to get down to the lick log. Writes the Washington Post, in coming days, negotiators from nearly 200 countries will haggle, haggle over every word and every line of an agreement that could shape how the rich countries of the world <clears throat> deliver on promises to help more vulnerable nations. Specifically, who will pony up the $100 billion per year promised to poor and developing nations at previous climate summits, yet never fully delivered? And who will pay the reparations for the loss and damage suffered by the poor and developing countries previously caused by the industrialized nations of the world? Buchanan says, at root, almost every globalist and transnational institution and summit has a common feature. And that is the endless transfer of wealth from the first world, the historic oppressors, to their alleged third world victims. These gatherings are to determine how much in reparations the latter can extort from a conscience-stricken West. And he asks, will the GOP reject the shakedown?
So two great articles. You'll find them both in the show notes, one from Connor Tomlinson, one from Pat Buchanan. We've got to take a quick break. As we go to break, let me remind you that our show is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Her phone number is 435-703-4522. If you need a home loan, and if you're shopping for a home in Utah, trust me, you, uh, you need something quick. Trust the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, an equal housing opportunity lender, to get you the funding you need and to get it quickly. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, welcome back to the show. You know, the desire to stand for something, particularly for things like freedom, freedom of conscience, personal liberty, freedom of association, etc. I know it's easy for some people to dismiss as, well, you're just going through your Ayn Rand phase, you know, like, like it's some kind of a political itch that, uh, that you just want to scratch, right? Isn't it easy to just, well, you know, I was a fanatic once about this kind of stuff, but now <laughs> I prefer to tell people what to do. Okay, maybe that's not how everybody thinks of it, but for, for a lot of us, there is a very distinct call that we feel to resist the tyrannical spell that has been cast over the world. And I understand that's a source of frustration to those who think that, uh, well, this is much ado about nothing, or it's just, this is wild conspiracy theories, or this is some kind of a political hobby that, you know, perhaps I'm just using to get attention. I can assure you, it is, uh, it is much more than that. This is something that, that uh, I think informs actually every decision and every, every aspiration that I have in my life. And if that sounds just sad and pathetic, well... You know, I'm not telling you that that's what you ought to do with yours, but I'm going to say I feel a very distinct call to to be the person that I was created to be. And I know other people who have, have tapped into this in their own lives. Not all of them, by the way, are, you know, doing what I'm doing. The point is it's a very personal thing, but if you have ever felt that hint of there is something greater that I was born to do, that's not a delusion of grandeur. That is a call from the universe. That is a call from your creator to recognize something that is uniquely yours and to rise to that occasion. Now, one of the most impressive calls and one of the most impressive uh, calls to answer that call, to, to stand up and resist the tyranny that is descending over us, comes from Anna, I'm sorry, Margaret Anna Alice. Three first names there. Margaret Anna Alice in her letter to a colluder, Stop Enabling Tyranny. The subtitle here is Stand Down So You Can Stand Up. And in looking at this, the, the resources that she has compiled, I'm just going to share a few excerpts, but man, she's got some great stuff here. She starts with an excerpt from Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945. This is, this is one of the books I recommend to everybody who I can because when they read it, 
without fail, every person that I've recommended this book to has said to me, holy crap, that book sounds like it's describing us. Because Milton Myers sat down and talked with average Germans who lived through those years, 1933 to 1945, and he got their attitudes on how did it come about? How did an entire society of very first world, well-educated citizens step into the abyss as they did in Germany? This excerpt says a few hundred at the top to plan and direct at every level. A few thousand to supervise and control without a voice in policy at every level. A few score thousand specialists, teachers, lawyers, journalists, scientists, artists, actors, athletes, and social workers eager to serve or at least unwilling to pass up a job or to revolt. A million of the pobel, which sounds like people and means riffraff, to do what we would call the dirty work, ranging from murder, torture, robbery, and arson, to the effort which probably employed more Germans in inhumanity than any other in Nazi history, the standing of sentry in front of Jewish shops and offices in the boycott of April 1933. Now, Margaret Anna Alice says, I'm willing to die to defend my liberty. And she asks, are you willing to die to take my liberty? No? Good. Then stop enforcing totalitarian measures against your neighbors on behalf of the tyrants who wouldn't hesitate to annihilate you. Stop planning, directing, supervising, controlling, and performing their dirty work. Become part of the resistance instead of an enabler of democidal despots. Now here's who she's speaking to. She says whether you are a law enforcement officer, public health official, psychologist, scientist, medical professional, educator, employer, censor, propagandist, or any other agent of complicity in this war against the people, you are what makes dictatorships possible. You are what makes enslavement possible. You are what makes genocide possible. You are what makes the biggest lie in history possible. Now, she says you may not be one of the Gestapo agents beating individuals entering a public space without their vaxport. She links, by the way, to, to each example of this. Wrenching children away from their vax criminal parents. Pummeling anti-injection protesters. Stripping and needle-raping resistors reverting Australia to a penal colony, or restraining and forcibly injecting the elderly and mentally disabled, otherwise known as useless eaters, by your predecessors. She says you may not be one of the public health officials instituting ineffectual and deleterious mask guidelines and lockdowns based on fraudulent PCR tests, testing wastewater to justify the iron-fisted measures, or falsifying the numbers to magnify a fabricated threat and conceal the deadly factual consequences and statistically astronomical number of adverse reactions to the injection. You may not be one of the psychologists devising the mass persuasion campaign that hypnotized the obedient, the gullible, and the ignorant around the globe. You may not be one of the scientists too frightened of losing your career, credibility, grant funding, and future to denounce the fraud being perpetrated under the cloak of science. I love the little trademark next to science. <laughs> That's almost become an inside joke now. She says, you may not be one of the physicians violating the Hippocratic Oath and Nuremberg Code as you deny potentially life-saving medications, deploy murderous injections, administer lethal drugs such as remdesivir, 
inflict ventilator-associated lung injuries, apply high-risk interventions like intubation, gang-inject patients, coerce pregnant mothers into risking miscarriage, refuse to treat non-GMO humans, and contemplate prioritizing ICU beds for the injected. Again, links to every single one of the examples she's citing here. You you may not be one of the nurses flouting the nursing code of ethics while pinning down screaming children as you plunge in the poison death jab. You may not be one of the daycare employees torturing toddlers into wearing a mask. You may not be one of the fascist institutions complying with the merciless edicts to fire the rational dissidents in your organization. You may not be one of the censors suppressing evidence of all of the above atrocities while simultaneously silencing and smearing the honorable scientists, medical experts, whistleblowers, and other truth-tellers valiant enough to refute the preposterous narrative you've swindled so many into believing. You may not be one of the propagandists blurring the biggest lie talking points over the loudspeakers through every conceivable mechanism, 24-7, 365, until the feeble-minded succumb to your relentless coercion from exhaustion, peer pressure, menticide, and Orwellian doublethink. She says you don't have to be any of those abominable scoundrels to be an enabler of tyranny. You simply need to hold your tongue. You simply need to look the other way. You simply need to turn a deaf ear. You simply need to stifle your gut feeling that something is profoundly, irrevocably wrong about every venomous lie, absurd policy, and malignant mandate that has bombarded the public since spring 2020. You simply need to live in fear. You simply need to cling to your ignorance. You simply need to follow the leader. You simply need to surrender to your cowardice. And she presents a few video clips here that are well worth your time. She says, see if you recognize your present or potential future self in any of the following scenes from these dystopian phantasmagorias of our own world is is increasingly coming to resemble. I love that one of the first clips that she uses is from THX 1138. I believe that was George Lucas's first film. And uh, it was, it was uh, I think this was produced in 1971, starring Robert Duvall. I remember seeing this as a teenager and thinking, holy crap, that's a disturbing film. Extremely dystopian. She's got a great clip from uh, Brazil, which, if you haven't seen it, is a wonderful parody about paper-pushing bureaucracy. She has a clip from Fahrenheit 451, where the old lady prefers to die rather than leave her books. A clip from a a clockwork orange, where the droogs take Alex for a walk. It's worth looking at these clips, if for no other reason, just to see that uh, sometimes life imitates art. And the dystopian elements that that are presented... In these clips, very strongly punctuate what uh, what she's pointing out here. Margaret Anna Alice. We'll come back to her article in a few moments, but to this uh, letter to a colluder, stop enabling. You don't have to be in an official position to be a colluder or to be an enabler to the tyranny that's settling over us right now. you got to be able to recognize it for what it is, and you've got to be strong enough to say no. I won't be a part of it. We'll come back to this, just the other side of these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. In today's show notes, you will find a link to this wonderful article by Margaret Anna Alice. This is on her Substack account. Letter to a colluder. Stop enabling the tyranny. And this is one of the strongest call-outs that I've seen, but it's also very, very well documented in the sense that she's not just ranting here. She provides you with links to each of the examples of abuse and legit tyranny that she's referring to. And this is a call to anybody who needs to hear the message that you have to stop looking away. You have to stop turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to these things and pretending that, well, as long as it's happening to somebody else, it really doesn't affect me. She says every act of collusion, every stain on your conscience, every bureaucratic compromise of your values etches an ineradicable scar into your soul. Now, as a uh, philologist colleague of Milton Myers explains, and they thought they were free, the Germans, 1933 to 45. This person explained one day too late your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy. And some minor incident, in my case, my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew swine, collapses it all at once. And you see that everything, everything has changed and changed completely under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you were born in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, is changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility, even to God. The system itself could not have intended this way, could not have intended this in the beginning, but in order to sustain itself, it was compelled to go all the way. You have gone almost all the way yourself. Life is a continuing process, a flow. Not a succession of acts and events at all. It has flowed to a new level, carrying you with it without any effort on your part. On this new level, you live. You have been living more comfortably every day with new morals, new principles. You've accepted things you would not have accepted five years ago, a year ago. Things that your father, even in Germany, could not have imagined. Suddenly it all comes down, all at once. You see what you are what you have done, or more accurately, what you haven't done, for that was all that was required of most of us, that we do nothing. You remember those early meetings of your department in the university when if one had stood, others would have stood, perhaps. But no one stood. A small matter. A matter of hiring this man or that, and you hired this one rather than that. You remember everything now, and your heart breaks. Too late. You are compromised beyond repair. It's one of the most powerful passages from the book, They Thought They Were Free, the Germans, 1933 to 45. Now, Margaret Anna Alice also goes on to point out how in Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland 
Christopher Browning ponders why only 12 men out of a battalion of nearly 500 kindled the courage to decline participation in the Josephal massacre of Polish Jews when Major Wilhelm Trapp, who himself wept bitterly at the command but ultimately complied, saying, but orders are orders, offered to excuse anyone who asked. Browning lists such factors as the pressure for conformity, Himmler's exalting obedience as one of the key virtues of all SS men, wartime brutalization, racism, segment, segmentation, and routinization of the task, special selection of the perpetrators, careerism, obedience to orders, deference to authority, ideological indoctrination, and fear of isolation, rejection, and ostracism. Thanks to the growing callousness that comes from habituation, the soldiers discovered that killing was something that someone could get used to. In fact, Browning found uh, Zygmunt Bauman's explanation particularly compelling, noting, for Bauman, cruelty is social in its origin, much more than it is characterological. Bauman argues that most people slip into the roles society provides them. And he's very critical of any implication that faulty personalities are the cause of human cruelty. What set these 12 brave men apart? Well, Browning summarizes Bauman's observation. The exception, the real sleeper, is the rare individual who has the capacity to resist authority and assert moral autonomy, but who is seldom aware of this hidden strength until put to the test. Now, I got to pause here for a moment. Many of us are being put to that test today. No, it's not about whether will you put the Jews on the boxcars and send them off to the death camps. It's something much more subtle, but it's just as real a test of that capacity to resist authority and to assert your moral autonomy. And I'm not trying to downplay or you know badmouth the people who have, have failed that particular test. We all fail tests at one time or another. But it's that awareness that makes it possible for us to stand up as we should. Browning goes on to, uh, to cite the conclusion that Philip Zimbardo drew from his notorious Stanford prison experiment. The most dramatic, and, most dramatic and distressing to us was the observation of the ease with which sadistic behavior could be elicited, elicited in individuals who were not sadistic types. The prison situation alone, Zimbardo concluded, was a sufficient condition to produce aberrant antisocial behavior. There's a great link to a video that helps further explain that. He then recaps the findings of another famous experiment, Obedience to Authority, conducted by Stanley Milgram. Now, Milgram added a number of factors to account for uh, such an unexpectedly high degree of potentially murderous obedience to a non-coercive authority. Things like socialization through family, school, and military service, as well as a whole array of rewards and punishments within society generally, reinforces and internalizes a tendency toward obedience. A seemingly voluntary entry into an authority system perceived as legitimate creates a strong sense of obligation. Those within the hierarchy adopt the authority's perspective or definition of the situation, in this case, as an important scientific experiment rather than the infliction of physical torture. The notions of loyalty, duty, discipline, requiring competent performance in the eyes of authority, become moral imperatives overriding any identification with the victim. 
Normal individuals enter what's called an agentic state in which they are the instrument of another's will. In such a state, they no longer feel personally responsible for the content of their actions, but only for how well they perform. Once entangled, people encounter a series of binding factors or cementing mechanisms that make disobedience or refusal even more difficult. The momentum of the process discourages any new or contrary initiative. The situational obligation or etiquette makes refusal appear improper, rude, or even an immoral breach of obligation. And a socialized anxiety over potential punishment for disobedience acts as a further deterrent. Now, Browning doesn't just focus on the ones who pulled the triggers. He also addresses the desk murderers, for whom homicidal acts were almost mundane thanks to the the desensitizing effects of the division of labor. It's a very interesting quote. I don't think we're going to have time to go through all of them. But the bottom line is, socialists and bureaucrats weren't the only ones responsible for executing enemies of the Third Reich. Medical personnel were also enlisted. And again, she has a great video clip uh, talking about this, the killing nurses of the Third Reich. And points out that few of the individuals who slaughtered slaughtered their fellow human beings were psychopaths initially. That's the scary part. They were average folks just like you and me. They were simply doing their jobs, which required increasing levels of savagery over time. That's the process by which well-meaning individuals metamorphose into barbarous sociopaths. And she says the only way to keep yourself from transmogrifying into a monstrous sadist is to alchemize your cowardice into courage now. You have the power to fell the Goliaths. You have the power to expose the corrupt. You have the power to subvert the technocrats. You have the power to uncloak the transhumanists. You have the power to bring justice to the self-instilled oppressors, demolishing and reconstructing the world in their own malevolent image. You have the power not to follow orders. And that's the note I'm going to end on here. I know it sounds like so much nasal gazing. Nasal gazing. Nasal. Try that again. Navel gazing to some people. I'm just going to look at my belly button and contemplate the world as it is and what I could do. If you're not acquainted with your conscience, if you haven't sat down and really outlined what you stand for and why, maybe it's a good time to do that. And then when push comes to shove, you'll know which lines you can safely cross as well as which ones you cannot. This is The Brian Hyde Show.